one of the questions that we have for new members is uh, it's actually a vow that you will make that you understand that you are apart from the gospel without hope under the wrath and judgment of God. You see, there is a common condition that faces all of humanity. How are we going to be right with God? We talked a, a couple weeks ago about God making his dwelling place with us when we considered verse 14 of John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there we trace through scripture how God had made a way to dwell with us. How he had overcome the conditions that kept us from him, from fellowship with him. Now we looked, you might say, sort of zoomed out at the problem as a whole. Alienation from God being separated from him. But what was the specific problem? The specific problem that kept us from being in the presence of God was, of course, sin. Sin is the stumbling block. Sin is the thing that keeps us from God's presence. Something has to happen for sin to be removed. The testimony this morning of John the Baptist is that very testimony that God in Christ has removed our sin through a lamb, through the lamb of God. You see, remember that the gospel of John is a series of eyewitnesses accounts that are all laid out as evidence for you, as testimony, as witness to the truthfulness of John's gospel. And you'll remember that we began this series looking at the very end of John, because John gives us his purpose statement. He says, this is why I'm writing, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in him. And that is the purpose of every single one of the messages that I will preach through the Gospel of John, so that you will know Jesus Christ. And John presents the testimony of John the Baptist. I know that's been confusing, right? I'm talking about the Apostle John, and I'm talking about John the Baptist. That's why we call John the Baptist. It's not because he was a Baptist instead of being a Presbyterian, right? It's so we can distinguish him from the Apostle John, because in this first chapter, it's talking about both. And of course, you'll know that the Apostle John doesn't refer to himself at all in the gospel. He says, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Right, So he identifies himself solely by his relationship to Jesus Christ. So as we come this morning to consider the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus Christ, let's stand together and hear from the Gospel of John, beginning chapter 1, looking at verse 29 through 34. And the reason we stand for the Gospel reading is because the posture of our heart is, inc- is important. We are standing because the good news of the gospel is being pronounced. If I did nothing but read these verses and say amen, you would hear the gospel. So let's turn together to John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for the precious conquering Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning as we consider what that means that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world, give us eyes to see and hearts that understand so that we may behold, as John says, the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God. And we pray this in His strong name. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. You'll notice that John the Baptist's testimony, he gives two pieces of evidence concerning Jesus Christ. First, that he is the Lamb of God, and second, that he is the Son of God. And both of these are vital characteristics of who the person of Jesus Christ is. And they flesh out what the ministry of Jesus will be. Remember that he is just beginning. He's just coming on to the stage as a person of importance, right? And now John prophetically singles him out by declaring to his disciples. And, and by the way, uh, most likely, uh, well, we know for sure that one of his disciples was the Apostle John. He was following John the Baptist. So he's there. He's there when John the Baptist says, Behold! And behold is kind of, it's hard to translate in English. But it's like a mom, you know, when she wants to get her child's attention and she grabs them by the face, you know, right by the cheeks and says, this is important. Do not walk through the house after you've been swimming to go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom right now and then afterwards dry off to come in, right? And that's important. So she gets their attention by grabbing their face. All right, you, you, behold, do not walk through the house wet. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's trying to grab you by the face and say, listen, what I'm about to tell you is important. You need to stop. You need to listen and you need to consider each of the words that I'm about to say. Now, of course, there are many images in scripture that are, evoke so many different feelings and emotions, and uh, uh, this image is no different, right? Sometimes you, maybe you're flipping through somebody else's family album, and you see a picture, and you're like, why did you save this picture? It's meaningless. But then you ask them about it, and they tell you all of the situation behind it. Oh, that was the day I got this, and, you know, maybe it's a picture of a hubcap or something, but it's important to them because it all of the memories that come with that and the family members and the situation in their life and what they were going through are all in that very image, right? And that's the same with the lamb. The image of a lamb is pregnant with meaning. It's so deep. 
that even in one sermon, there's no way I could plumb the depths of it. But I want to just distill it down to two foundational stories and one promise. Two stories and one promise. And these begin to give us some of the data, some of the ideas that form the image of a lamb, or, and a, especially the lamb of God. The first story comes to us from Genesis 22. And there, the patriarch Abraham has been called by God in a test to sacrifice his only son Isaac. If you remember the story of Abraham, he has been through a series of, let's just say, adventures in trusting God, right? He's been asked to leave his homeland to go all the way from Ur, which is in Iraq, all the way around the, the, uh, through Mesopotamia, down into Israel to the promised land. And he does. He walks out. But then as the time goes on, he begins to grow older and he has no heir. Nobody who is going to take his place. Nobody who's going to pass on his inheritance to. And the Lord said, don't worry. I'm going to bless you with a son. He's going to be your very heir. And he's going to come from Sarah, your wife. Now, in the meantime, they, they figure out different ways to try to get an heir right, through her servant, Hagar. And so Ishmael is born. But finally, God answers his promise when it seems like it's way too late. When Sarah's 100 years old, they have Isaac. And given that child of promise, of course, he favors him. He loves him. And he loves him. But God wants to make sure that his love for his son Isaac does not surpass his love for God. And so he commands him, go and sacrifice your only son, your son of promise. And Abraham goes, he takes his son, who, by the way, was probably 12 to 17 years old. He knows what's going on. We're going up to sacrifice. We have the wood for the sacrifice, but we have no animal. We have nothing to sacrifice. He asks his father, and his father says, Ah, oh, don't worry, son, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So he binds his son and he puts him on the altar and he begins to plunge the knife to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord intervenes and says, stop. Now I know that you trust me, that you love me. And he provides for them a ram who's caught in a thicket. And in place of sacrificing Isaac, a ram is sacrificed as a substitute for his only son. He takes the sin because he takes the place of Isaac. So the two aspects of a lamb are beginning to take shape for us as the people of God. A lamb which is provided by God as a substitute in sacrifice instead of Isaac, his only son. Now the second story you might know comes from Exodus 12 and the Passover Egypt, Israel has been in Egypt for hundreds of years. They have grown and grown and grown to the point where the Pharaoh is concerned about them. And so he begins to forcefully enslave them in harsh and bitter ways. And they call on the Lord and he sends a deliverer, Moses. Well, after he duels with Pharaoh, 
over the course of nine horrific plagues where God demonstrates his power through signs and wonders by crushing the gods of Egypt. It comes to the very final plague. And Moses tells Pharaoh, if you do not let the people of God go, I will never see you again. And this very night, all the firstborn of Egypt, as well as the firstborn of all the livestock, will be killed. But in Exodus 12, God speaks to Moses and he tells him, I want the families of Israel to gather as families. And I want them to take a lamb. And I want them to sacrifice it and pour the blood out into a basin. And I want them to take the blood and put it around the door. And the angel of death, when he comes through Egypt, when he sees the blood of the sacrificial lamb, he will pass over the house of Israel. That lamb died as a substitute for the firstborn of all Israel, as a sacrifice. And so the angel of death passed over with its wrath, and the firstborn of all Egypt were decimated. And there was loud wailing and crying. But all of the firstborn of Israel were still alive because the Lamb of God took away their sins as a substitute for them. Do you see how these stories are beginning to form the foundation of how the people of God think about sacrifice, how they think about a lamb and what that means, that it provides atonement and it is in the form of a substitute. You see, God was teaching his people through these stories and they rehearsed these. They would redo the Passover every year. And the children would ask the father, why are we doing this? Well, it's because God brought us out of Egypt. He delivered us. And he delivered us from this plague by a sacrifice who provided a way of covering over our house through his own blood. And in that, their eyes, by faith, are to be drawn towards the Lamb of God who would come, who would eventually deliver us his people from sin. And so these stories are forming the foundation of the image of the Lamb of God. But there's one other. As history proceeds, as they add to this, the prophets begin to speak and give more clarity. They give more clarity about who the Messiah was going to be, who this Lamb of God would be. And as we read from Isaiah 53, the image is stark. We would lay upon him the sins of his people. He would be a suffering servant. The Lamb of God would not just be a lamb. It would be a person offering himself up for the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The image of the Lamb of God is fully formed when we see the suffering servant come and offer himself as a sacrifice in substitute for you to make satisfaction for your sins. Your sin was laid on him and he took the full penalty of it in the wrath of God as 
your substitute to satisfy divine justice, to remove sin. So when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God, all of that imagery is to come rushing into your head. Oh, I know what a Lamb of God is. It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice on my behalf to satisfy what I could never satisfy. So when John is taking you by the face and saying, Look, there's Jesus. He's the one who takes away your sin. The only response is is to accept that testimony as true. John is pointing to the substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies divine justice and directs it right at Jesus. That's the one. That's the one that Isaiah talked about. That's the one that is pictured in the sacrifice in Genesis 22. On the mount of the Lord it will be provided That's the one who is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed for us. That's the one who all of our daily sacrifices typified. They all point to him. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that forgive sin. It's him bearing the sins of the whole world. He is the one who takes away sin. And John is, he's wanting us to see that it's Jesus even before he's done it. He hasn't even made his way to the cross yet. But John is anticipating this is the one. This is the one who's going to do it, who will take away the sins of the world. He will remove the problem that kept us from God, that we remained alienated and enemies. But now we can be at peace. We can be reconciled because our sin, which is the problem, is removed. and We're no longer his enemies. And so we see with the eyes of faith the lamb who was slain, who was killed on our behalf, and we're drawn to worship him. But his testimony doesn't stop there. Notice in verse 32, it says, And John bore witness. Again, he's bearing witness. He already bore witness. Behold, the Lamb of God. But now John, the Apostle John, adds more of John the Baptist's evidence. More testimony that Jesus is who he said he would be in the scriptures. He is that person. John is marking him out so that, of course, disciples will follow him. We'll we'll look at that next week. But John gives even more evidence in verse 32. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And that's legal language that he's using. I've seen it, I was an eyewitness, and I bear witness. My witness is true because I have seen it. He is the Son of God. Why is it important that Jesus is the Son of God? And what's this about the Holy Spirit that convinces John the Baptist that this is the Lamb of God and that he is indeed the Son of God? Well, God gave him a promise. You see, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant was always, for, uh, a, was always temporary and for a particular purpose. We see beginning in Exodus 13 or 31 verse 3 the first mention of the ho- of the holy spirit coming and filling someone is for the purpose of constructing the tabernacle 
He gives these men gifts so that they can work with metal and fabric and art so that they can fashion a temple, a tabernacle for the worship of God. And they're filled with the Spirit for that very purpose. And the same as we walk through redemptive history, we see that God fills people with the Spirit to do a particular purpose, a function. Judges are filled with the Spirit so that they may deliver God's people. Samson is filled with the Spirit. And, he, and when he's filled with the Spirit, he overcomes the Philistines. Saul is filled with the Spirit. We looked a lot at him. Now, he didn't do what he was supposed to do, but he was filled with the Spirit for the purpose of leading God's people. David was filled with the Spirit. The prophets were filled with the Spirit for the purpose of speaking the words of God. The Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit, is given to people so that they may execute a certain function. And it was temporary. But, so when Jesus, when John is promised that when the one that you are preparing the way for, the Messiah, your very purpose is to make ready a people for him, how will I know who he is? When you see the Spirit descend and remain on him, that's the one that is the Messiah, that is the Son of God, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see the the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call them synoptic Gospels because they're very similar. They tell the stories from a very similar perspective. Some of their wording is quite similar, as if they borrowed from each other, right, in their uh, and the account of John is quite different, actually. He tells and outlines much different stories, and he has a different theological emphasis. Now, of course, we know that this fourfold gospel actually makes the testimony of Scripture much stronger, right? Uh, historians, even secular historians, will testify to that fact that we have four eyewitnesses that give a very similar but different, it has to be different because otherwise it would seem like it had been manufactured if it's exactly the same. For no two people say the same event in the same way. And so we have uh, in the Synoptic Gospels the baptism of John, uh, the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descends on him in his baptism. But John doesn't tell us anything about that. He doesn't tell us that that's what's happening. He just says he saw the Spirit descend on him and remain on him, and that was uh, for him proof that Jesus was the Christ. And the Spirit, of course, remains on him to empower him for his mission. Well, what's his mission? What was he called to do? Well, in the same way as all the previous fillings with the Holy Spirit, he's come to be a king to lead a people in victory and to establish a kingdom. He's come to be a priest as the Lamb of God, to lay down his life for the sins of the world. He's come to be a prophet, the very word of God. And so in that way, the Spirit remains on him and empowers him for mission to be a prophet, priest, and king, to ultimately lead him to the cross and then to his resurrection. And this identifies him in a fuller way with all of those Old Testament figures. For in them we see shadows of what the Messiah would be like in Moses, in David, in Isaiah. All those figures of prophets and priests and kings 
figure, they typify what the Messiah would be like, what he would do. Of course, he would be all of these in one person, and he would be more, um, he would fulfill them in ways that, and that went well beyond what they were able to ever do. And of course, the filling of Jesus with the Spirit is meant to illustrate the inseparable unity that Jesus has with the Father. What unites the two natures of Jesus in one? We've already spent a great deal of time in the prologue talking about the Word who was in the beginning with God, who was God, who came and became flesh. Well, how did, how do, what affects that union of divine and human in one person? Two natures. Well, it's the Holy Spirit that unites them together. And in that, we see a picture of our own union, our own remaining union. For the word that John uses for remain is translated elsewhere as abide. Abide in me, just as I abide in you, Jesus says in John 15. John is drawing our attention to the union that the Son has with the Father, which is the same union and power that he's been given through the baptism of the Spirit to unite all of us to him by his Spirit. So he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This confirms it. He's God's Son. That Jesus will baptize with the Spirit fulfills the reality of what John's baptism only pointed to, taking away the sins of the world. But Jesus' baptism actually does it. John the Baptist points forward to the remission of sins through the symbolic washing away. But Jesus actually takes away your sin. He actually removes it on the cross. I need to say something here about taking away the sin of the world. John is not advocating universalism, that all will be saved. Uh, Some have drawn that conclusion from this. But John is not saying that all will be saved because we we know from verse 12 uh, of the uh, prologue that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. There were people he came to who rejected him. But what John is saying is that Jesus is the Savior of the world without distinction. Not just the Savior of the Jews. Not just the Savior of the people who are of the line of Abraham. Not just the Pharisees or this particular sect who call themselves faithful. But all of the world, without distinction, not without exception, but without distinction. As God's Son, Jesus is uniquely positioned to be able to affect what other sacrificial lambs only point to. Namely, the actual removal of sin. And why? And I want to show it's for two reasons why it's absolutely important that we take both of these together. He is the Lamb of God and He is the Son of God. He must be both. First, because in order to offer up Himself as a sacrifice, He had to be perfect. I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. My wife will tell you. Jesus had to be perfect 
in order to be, to qualify as the spotless Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, he had to have no blemish. Who among man could be that? Who born of Adam could be that? For we all inherited the curse of sin and death from our father Adam. But Jesus has a different father. His father is God and he is perfect. Free from the taint of original sin. But also, not only does he need to be perfect, but he must be God so he can take the wrath of God. Not just for his just for one single sin, you, you, we can't fathom the immense weight of the wrath of God for just our sin. Now, consider the sin of the whole world. All those from Adam until Jesus returns again, all of his elect bride, Jesus has purchased their salvation by taking the wrath of God for them. No mere man could ever do that. No mere man could stand under the weight of God's judgment. He had to be able to defeat and endure death. He had to be the Son of God. There only remains one thing for you to do. When you hear John the Baptist say, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You, the only thing that remains for you to do is accept the testimony of John that it's true and then believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God that took away your sin. John is saying the same thing to you. There he is. There he is, the Lamb of God who has removed your sin, who has taken away the guilt and the shame of it, who has dealt decisively with it at the cross. And all you do is what the hymn writer said. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. It's just accepting the testimony of John the Baptist that the Lamb of God, that Jesus has taken away your sin. My sin was laid on him. He removed the guilt of my sin. Not just sin and abstraction, but my sins that I committed this morning and yesterday and that I will commit in the future. All of them have been forgiven and removed through Jesus Christ. And the Lamb of God lays down His life for His sheep. He doesn't do it under compulsion. The Father doesn't make the Son die. The Son willingly gives His life for you. He lays it down and He takes it up again. And I will draw your attention to this over and over, John. Jesus is not a passive sufferer. He willingly goes. You'll notice that Jesus is, or John's testimony of the, the, the betrayal. It's totally different than the other disciples. They come out against Him and He says, I am, and they fall down dead. And he says, what are you doing? Come and take me. I'm ready. And then when he's on the cross, he says, I'm done. I'm finished. And he lays down his spirit. Jesus is in control from the very beginning to the very end. He lays down his own life to remove your sin. And you have to accept that is true. That's all. That's all you have to do. You have to accept that it's true for you. That he suffered and bled and died for you. 
that it's your sins that nailed him there. But, and this does wonders for our assurance, right? If you, if you listen to the testimony of John the Baptist, which to some sounds crazy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if that is nonsense to you, then there's a good chance that you haven't accepted the testimony of John. But if you have, if it makes sense, then it's a deep assurance to your faith that you are those who are been born of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That you are indeed those who have received Jesus and are, of course, adopted in his family and called children of God. And it just wonders for your assurance. But it also, it really takes the wind out of your own sails. What ground is left for your boasting? Because what did you do? What did you do to remove your sin? Nothing. You brought it to Jesus. That's it. So what ground do you have for boasting? None. The only response to this salvation belongs to the Lord. And that can be writ over the entirety of Scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He has done it. You enter into it. You join in that. You participate in it, but only by faith, by bringing. And so the only answer, the only response is, of course, gratitude. Doxology. We lift up our hands and we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But there's always a a caveat, isn't there? In theory, we might agree with everything I just said. Yes, Jesus is my Savior. I believe that. I trust in Him. But in reality, in our lived experience in life, we began to have in our practice by putting trust in something else to save us. We have functional saviors. Yes, I believe Jesus is my Savior, but in your day-to-day life, in your lived experience, there are things that you trust more than Jesus to save you to overcome the guilt and the shame that you experience. Jerry Bridges defines a functional Savior this way, quote, Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. These functional Saviors can be an object of dependence we embrace that isn't God. They become the source of our identity, the security and significance, because we hold an idolatrous affection for them in our hearts. They preoccupy our minds and consume our time and resources. They make us feel good and somehow even make us feel righteous. Whether we realize it or not, they control us and we worship them. End quote. We all resort to functional saviors. John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. Right? And we're constantly finding our identity in this or that, in this pursuit. And what preoccupies your time and your thinking? Is it the Lamb of God? Sometimes, some of you, your functional saviors are security. You want to know that you're safe and you're cared for. You've got money in your bank. Your 401k is growing. You want to be sure. So you have built bigger barns for yourself. 
And you're trusting in security. That's your savior. That's what's going to get you through suffering. That's what's going to keep you from suffering. For others of you, it's America. America is your functional savior. And that is evidenced by how much hope you place in the political candidates or the process. You're absolutely deflated when your candidate doesn't win. And all of your hope and your time and your efforts are spent on the politics of America. Security, America, those are good things. It's great to be an American. I'm thankful for the freedoms and the privileges we have. I'm grateful that God has blessed me and I do have some security that I can sleep at night and know that my children are fed and clothed and warm and cool in in the summer and winter. I'm thankful for those things, but if they take the ultimate place of salvation for me, they become an idol and they rob God of his glory and they take the glory that belongs to our only Savior who in removed sin... None of our functional saviors can ever remove sin. But when we, substitute, when we substitute other things and put them in the place of Jesus, we rob him of that glory. Money, relationships, education, pleasure, entertainment, they all have subtle ways of infiltrating and capturing our hearts and bending our loves until they conform us to them. That's their goal. That's why God, Satan uses them to distract us. The things of this world are enmity against God, John says in his first letter. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't reject him for counterfeit offerings. Don't exchange him for a functional Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are in awe of our Savior Jesus Christ as He offered up Himself for us. He who knew no sin, who left the privileged place at Your side to experience the horrors of life in a broken and fallen world. But to make matters worse, You laid on Him the sins of all the world and He suffered And died and rose again so that he could remove the guilt and the shame and the consequence, the penalty for that sin. Oh, Father, we see, we see with eyes of faith the testimony of John and we believe. And we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ as our faithful Savior. And we ask, Father, that you would root out any other saviors that we might trust in so that our devotion may be holy to you. For we pray this in Christ's name and amen. Saints, before we come to the Lord's table,